Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings admirable advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. So we've just finished up with Sally with her show Out of the Pan and Sally's last track was Midnight Oil's Friends. So thanks for that, Sally. So today we are really pleased to have Dr Ash Nayati join us. Ash is a clinical neuropsychologist and author and she speaks widely on activism, emotional well-being, and positive mental health. So Ash will be joining us in just a few moments. And we're going to call up Ash. And before we do that, we're going to chuck on a song so that we can give Ash a call and um, and do it all nice and seamlessly. And today, actually, we are going to try and um, do a bit of a highlight of a an Australian artist, an Australian um, singer and songwriter, I, I believe. That's right. Um, called Katie White. And this first song is called All The Same. So if you like it, check out Katie. We've got a couple of other songs of Katie's um, coming up throughout the show. Into this world they
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Good afternoon. We're on now with Dr. Ash. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're really thrilled that you could join us. So as we mentioned in the intro, Dr. Ash is a clinical neuropsychologist. She's an author and she's a well-known speaker. And a lot of Ash's work uh, relates to activism and emotional well-being and maintaining positive uh, mental health. So we are so happy that you could join us, Ash. And I guess just to start off, could you give us a bit of background on your work as a clinical neuropsychologist and how that actually informs your animal rights activism? Sure. I actually was studying to become a clinical neuropsychologist around the time I became vegan. So that was 13 years ago. And uh, so I, I sort of feel like I came into veganism and animal rights activism around the same time that I was becoming a full, fully-fledged neuropsychologist. And in terms of activi- activism, I feel that a lot of the interpersonal work that we do in trying to influence and um, help people transition to veganism, a lot of it's related to psychology and mm. having that understanding of brain function and uh, our psychological health and our psychological needs. I found it to be quite useful um, in understanding understanding people's resistance and, and some of the difficulties that come up um, for people who are we're reaching out to, but also for ourselves in, in this social justice movement and trying to cope and navigate in a world that's not vegan. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, Ash. So we are going to talk a little bit today about um, Ash's book, which is called Staying Positive in a Effed Up World. And um, I love in the introduction, Ash, that you talk about an incident um, when you are a, a relatively new vegan and that you're walking down Swanson Street in the heart of Melbourne CBD and you encounter a group of animal rights activists outside a fast food restaurant handing out flyers about um, cruelty to chickens. And you say that you took one of those flyers and you took it home and, you know, presented that to family. And would you like to um, let us know what happened then and what their, their sort of response was? Oh, it was met with complete resistance. And it was, it was sort of the, the verbal equivalent of covering, covering the hands um, over the ears and saying, la, 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 I'm not going to listen to what you're saying. And I, I acknowledge that I came at this with a very, <clears throat> uh, I would say, a very uh, aggressive manner, which was, you know, this is what's happening to chickens. How can you just participate in this? Look at what's happening to them. And it was very, literally very in your face. Um, and the, that response was just complete brick wall, complete shutting down. Yeah. I find those um, those conversations with friends and family can be some of the hardest as well. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, can you tell us a little bit of, of why why does that re- reaction occur, do you think, uh, that when you come at things a bit more aggressively, there's that shutting mm. down or that, that real strong um, just pushing back? Yes, that's a very complex question. I'll do my best to do justice to that. <clears throat> when we're feeling attacked, whether or not we're being attacked, but when we're feeling attacked, our natural response is to become defensive. And, mm. you know, that we, we notice that in a physical sense, if someone was physically attacking us, we would put up our hands to defend ourselves um, and to fight back as well. And the same thing happens psychologically. So we might say to ourselves, okay, what is this, what psychologically, what is the attack that is happening? And when we think about aggressively advocating for animals, we're often um, attacking people in a way that their personal character is being attacked. So we're not necessarily saying, oh, your choices are wrong. We're saying you are wrong Mm. because this is what you do. And so the natural response to when we're feeling attacked, when we, um, our, our character, the very nature of who we are is being attacked. The natural response is to fight back. And we also have to put, put up a wall of defensiveness. So that might be just 
I'm stonewalling them saying, no, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me anything. I'm not going to listen. And them walking away. Or it could be they're still being physically present and they're, they, they appear to be listening to what we're saying, but we know that the message isn't actually sinking in. And and from a um, activist point of view, I, I I know how I feel, but you know, how did you feel when your family, you know, the people you love and care about most in the world, had that sort of response to your um, advocacy for the chickens? How did that make mm-hmm. you feel your, as an activist? And your passion and yeah. your passion for chickens and sharing this knowledge. Yes, I felt frustrated and also confused because, you know, the, the, my, my family and I share many similar values uh, and, th- and that was the case. Um, at the time, though, I was not approaching it in a value-driven way. I was very much approaching it as, how can you do this? And, and the you um, was, would have been perceived as a personal attack. Mm, yeah, I can appreciate that. So I really loved that um, that you shared that moment and that was a really um, fascinating and, and powerful, I guess, scene setter for the book. Could we ask you to, I guess, give some sort of further context on what really motivated you to write this book? Because I love the book and we'd love you to tell people um, where they can find it as well. It's something that I recommend to a lot of people um, to read. Sure. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your kind words as well. Um, uh, the the book actually happened almost. It, it's not so much I wrote the book as it, as the book was was needed to be written because I was in in my activist work. I was coming across a lot of fellow animal activists who were struggling with various things, whether it was dealing with family and friends or um, coping with their own reactions like we spoke about the frustration, and I I found myself having very similar sorts of conversations again and again. And that was great in in Melbourne because um, there's a lot of animal rights activism that happens here and I could talk to a lot of people. And then I realised, well, if it's happening here and to so many people of such diverse backgrounds that it may well be happening in other parts of Australia, in other parts of the world. And then uh, a friend of mine very helpfully suggested that I write a book and and that's how the book sort of got written. And and the and and I suppose not even um, just other parts of the country, other parts of the world, but possibly in other uh, other areas and forms of activism as well. So mm. it, it might mm. um, help address not only people interested in animal uh, rights or animal advocacy, but other forms of advocacy around environmentalism who face the same yeah. struggles or mm, um, queer definitely. advocacy, as Sally from Out of the Pan in the previous show mentioned, um, that the people who are advocating in those same spaces will likely be fo- uh, um, facing the same challenges. So it would be mm. great to hear more about um, sort of what you've presented in the book, like how, how people can think about that and um, maybe process that. Yeah, so I, when I wrote the book, it was very much coming from an animal activist mindset and a lot of the experiences that I share in the book are from my animal rights activism. Um, and having said that, I do acknowledge that, um, a, a, that, that animal activism doesn't occur in a vacuum and mm-hmm. many of us, we are grappling with uh, other forms of oppression. Maybe we're experiencing it ourselves or we're allies for other social justice movements. So um, I... I, my hope is that the book is relevant uh, across a number of social justice movements um, and at the same time, each movement um, has its own unique difficulties. So uh, issues that might be relevant to, say, uh, pe- uh, uh, let's say, um, people of colour, black Indigenous people of colour, um, there will be some very unique difficulties there which would not be addressed in the book because they're not related to animal rights activism. Yeah, that's a good mm. good um, preface for sure. Mm, mm, absolutely. So one of the things that um, I do like that you've touched on is the way that we can feel that messages around social justice and veganism are often ignored or judged or ridiculed, and that could be by people that we know and love or, or by strangers, and that we're often left sort of feeling baffled by that apathy and, and the contempt we can face. And then Mm. there's those struggles that actually arise from, I guess, a sort of inner conflict about our vision um, of a better world um, and the world that that we hope to to move towards. And then I guess our brain sort of self-protection mechanisms. And could you 
explain and expand on that a little bit further, Ash? Sure. Uh, I, I would say that our psyches are kind of like an onion with many layers and at the very deepest layer, I would like to think that there's that, that inherently good, uh, just um, part of us that wants to see the world thrive and see humanity thrive and we recognise the interconnectedness of all things on, uh, on uh, covering that and in many time, in many instances concealing that can be uh, the, the struggles that we face in our lifetime, traumas that we experience, um, ways in which our own needs have gone unfulfilled and so the, the true essence of ourselves can become hidden in a way and mm-hmm. so when we advocate for animals we don't know at which layer where we're reaching. We don't know are we reaching are we are we really reaching to a person's realization of the interconnectedness of things and the just the profoundly horrible way animals are treated, or are we reaching their defenses? And mm-hmm. the defenses can be very strong. And the defenses could be anything from, as you mentioned, apathy, um, and, and just an apparent disregard for life and the sanctity of of life, uh, and all the way through to um, anger. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that when we do advocate for animals, and I'm sure you've experienced, both of you have experienced this, that sometimes we get met with this extreme level of hatred, and we think to mm. ourselves, how could it possibly be that advocating for animals should 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 create this level of hatred? Um, and it's because of what. The, the layer that's being reached and what it's eliciting. And many times when we are met with hatred, it's because we have touched a nerve somewhere and the person who we're speaking with, they realise on some level that what they're doing is wrong. But instead of responding to it in a healthy way, in an adaptive way, it's met with resistance that then becomes anger. So in that is instance, the sadness that they feel and the guilt that they feel, it's actually coming out as anger. Thanks for that, Ash. That was really um, a very timely explanation because uh, a group of us had a city vigil yesterday on the Swan Street Bridge. And as you know, we're simply observing um, trucks transporting animals um, to slaughterhouses and right. taking photographs, etc. And, you know, we have banners up on the side of the road and um, people are holding um, up signs. A few of them were honk to show compassion for animals, which many motorists did, which was lovely. Mm-hmm. And there were a few motorists who wanted to sort of yell some things out of um, car windows. And, and one of them I was really perplexed by, it was get a life. Mm. Yelling to us, get a life. And I thought, how can you be so upset by people who are standing silently on the roadside not really impacting your life except perhaps putting some messages um, in front of you that you perhaps don't want to see or and, and, don't want to And quite ironic because, I mean, what you're trying to do is get a life. Yes. <laughs> for, for yes. The yeah. yes. Um, save, it's to save a life, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And this person was extremely angry and took some photos of us and, you know, there are a few obscenities, um, you know. Mm directed our way and and I just had to shake my head and sort of go wow I just cannot believe you'd be so upset by this and um yeah and this what you were talking about Ash reminds me of a a really uh short uh useful book I think I've read it um called Motivational Methods for Vegan Advocacy um Mm. by Casey T. Taft he's a PhD psychologist as well a clinical psychologist um, doing research psychology in America and it it also talks about that figuring out where someone is in the um, in the process of behavior change and there's Mm. a point at the very start where people are just they're they're in the pre um, they're not even ready to understand it. They're not even ready to mm. start thinking about it. They're in so pre-motivation. Pre-awareness kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So, and those people are just sort of like, it's just going to cause a lot of heartache and pain for you, even trying to, to connect with them um, mm. and really yeah. targeting who you speak to um, for your own benefits. <laughs> do you have any thoughts yeah. on, on that? And how, yeah, how do you, how do you figure that out? Yeah. So, um, 
you know, I, I haven't read that book, by the way, so thank you for the heads up on that. I'll try and um, get a hold of that one. And it sounds like when, when we're talking about adopting new thoughts and new habits um, in psychology, there's often different stages, like the pre-contemplative stage That's and then the, the contemplative yep. stage, which is yep. what happens before the behaviour change actually occurs. Yep. Um, and, you know, I... I have a slightly different perspective. I'm not saying it's right. Yeah, cool. I do have a different perspective on this, which is that the people who respond with the most hatred and anger, I feel they're the ones who we've touched a nerve. And mm. in many ways, if we ask ourselves, what is the goal of advocacy? Well, ultimately, it is to convince that person to become vegan. Uh, and we don't know if we meet, we, we have no way of knowing if we've met that goal, at least not immediately. Um, However, if the goal then, if the sub-goal becomes we want that person to think and to make the connection, then the way I look at it is that to hit a nerve is actually a good thing for us. Now, it doesn't feel good because it doesn't feel good when someone's attacking us or saying hurtful things or telling us to get a life or get a job, which is another popular one. Mm. Um, Heard that one however, yesterday too. On a Saturday yeah, afternoon. Exactly. I don't know. It's Saturday. I know. <laughs> I know, and um, and and it's interesting because it's in in many ways it happens a lot on social media as well, and I'm sure you know that the comments in some mainstream uh, news sites can just be absolutely awful. Mm, and definitely. if we take a step back and we think to ourselves, the only reason that these people are so hostile and they're reacting with such aggression is because they know on some level that what they're doing is wrong. And they, they feel compelled to respond. Because if they were truly apathetic to animal suffering, they wouldn't say anything at all. Mm. They, wouldn't, they would just scroll, scroll on by. Mm. If you're apathetic, you don't care, and it doesn't even register on you. But there's something about you know, an article about a cow being saved or an article about some, someone who's gone vegan or you know, Lewis Hamilton posting something on his Instagram. Mm. There's mm. something about that that is just so individually unsettling for them that they have no choice but to come on and say something and yes. it's it's a you know from the guilt and the shame and the uh, sadness that they feel and it all gets convoluted and the way that it comes out is through this hostility mm. One of the so point- i think it's a, maybe a good sorry sorry no ahead. no no you go you go i was just going to say so if we ever find ourselves faced with that kind of hostility hopefully for for anybody listening to this, hopefully it's a good way to um, look at that hatred as maybe it means that we've touched a nerve and maybe that's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's sort of this, um, I like to think about the the transition from, you know, animal harming to a, a life of um, a strong vegan ethic where you're trying to minimise harm as much as possible is mm. it doesn't all occur at once. There's not like the mm. light bulb moment, but it's, it's sort of there's these touch points along along the way that each one might um, get you a little bit closer to that to that flip where you go okay mm. I wasn't vegan now I'm vegan and you know that angry response might be the thing that they think about two months six months down the track and go you know wow that that there was something there why mm. did I get they might reflect on that you know mm. so I think mm. that's a really good point Ash that. Um, if we if we keep that positive understanding or that positive sort of thought around those interactions, that can be helpful and not get us down as much. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, and and at the same time, as advocates and activists, it's really hard to be on the receiving end of that. Mm. And yes. I don't think that I think that we need to be mindful of our emotional bandwidth. And we'll get to a point where we just say, you know what, I just can't engage on social media right now, and that's yes. okay. Uh, yeah. And then maybe in those instances, we do what Melanie Joy. Um, what she suggests, which is go for the low-hanging fruit. So the mm. people who are already vegetarian or they're almost vegan, reach out to them. Yeah. yeah. Just on that point of aggression, I really, really like a point that you make again in your book that aggression is often a cover-up for fear. So I wonder how that plays into some of the reactions um, that people may have that they actually mm-hmm. think you know, our messages are threatening their way of life, um, threatening, yep. you know, their livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera. V- vegan threat, I think it is in the region. Ah, isn't it vegan terrorists, yeah. you know? Vegan, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. And the, the most obvious, um, the most obvious uh, person to look to is would be, you know, farmers, um, mm. those who 
are raising these animals to be slaughtered. I mean, we can see there's a very direct link there between their livelihoods being threatened and the fear, uh, even though it, the fear is understandable because anyone would feel afraid when their livelihood is being you know, quote-unquote threatened, meaning mm. that another industry is potentially pushing that out. Um, it doesn't make it okay, obviously. Um, and I would say that fear can come in many other ways too because if our... Let's say, let's say there's a person who is not vegan and their partner decides to become vegan, then for that person, they might respond with a lot of anger to that decision because deep down within, they're thinking, what impact is that going to have on me? Am I going to have to change? Will I feel compelled to change when I see the benefits that my partner experiences? Or will I learn something about animal ethics and then I feel that I won't be able to continue living the way that I am? So there's a fear of change. There can be the fear of how a relationship will change, how the dynamic will change. They might say, uh, the, the partner who's not become vegan, they, they might think to themselves, oh, we can't have our Friday night fish and chip night anymore. Mm. So yeah. there, there's so many avenues in which threats can be perceived. Yeah. And the threat is understandable because we all have a resistance to change because change is unknown. Yes. Uh, and the the status quo, even if it sucks, it's still predictable and therefore we feel like we have some semblance of control. So the fear, there can also be fear of success, um, believe it or not, which is people who think to themselves, well, if I become vegan, if I learn about animal exploitation um, and then I will never be able to consume animals again. Mm. And then, and what if, what if that all works out really well for me? What if I feel great? And what if I'm happy to be vegan? Then I know I'll have lived the first, you know, 27 years of my life consuming animals. And even the prospect of that can be so uh, individually threatening that mm. it's better to not even try it or not even to go down that road. That's fantastic. I've never thought of that. Thanks, Ash. Yeah. And and um, I think you've got it. Do you have a book on... Um, vegan relationships as well or that that dynamic with um or is that someone else no that's a different that's a different person sorry no, no but, that's not me yep but ash has written about vegan parenting which ah. is probably something else we we can, we can touch we on can if we into. have time yeah, today we might yes. we might go for a um <laughs> another song and we'll speak to ash on the other side this is another um song by katie wide an australian artist singing about um animal issues and this one is 106 my name is 106 or so they say i've never seen the daylight or run or played but i can dream and this is where i find
More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR855 Radio or online or via podcast, wherever you get those. And today we're having a really great chat with Dr. Ash Nayati um, about um, vegan activism and how you might, like some of the um, issues with burnout and um, facing certain responses to your activism and how you can manage that as as an activist uh, to stay positive in an effed up world uh, which is the title of ash's really great book um and yeah so thanks for stay, staying on the line ash um i think caroline's got another question for you yeah well, thanks adam i think you sort of touched on the on this topic anyway ash i know you've written and spoken a lot about um activist burnout but can you outline um what you see are the key elements there and some of your suggestions for for dealing with that, please. Sure. So activist burnout is really an accumulation of stress without an an adequate uh, rest and reprieve and recovery. And so burnout is something that creeps up on us and uh, it's sort of the stress compounds until we reach that state of complete physical and emotional and cognitive exhaustion. And uh, when... If we're thinking about some of the signs of burnout, and by this is not a comprehensive list at all, some of the physical signs of burnout would be a lack of, of energy, um, uh, inability to sleep, changes in uh, changes in appetite, so inability to eat because of stress. Some uh, emotional signs of burnout would be irritability and inability to um, to view the world in multiple different perspectives, maybe always taking a more pessimistic view of the world. Some cognitive signs would be difficulties concentrating, difficulties with memory, planning and problem solving. And then um, also, I I guess you would call them some spiritual signs of burnout. I'm not sure if spiritual is the right word. It would be um, a a hatred of any particular group. So whether it's hating humans, as I'm not talking about the acts of humanity, I'm talking about hating humanity as a whole, uh, an inability to see the interconnectedness of all things, perhaps um, isolating on animal uh, advocacy and activism while also participating in the oppression of other groups. Mm. Uh, to me, these can all be signs of burnout. So the way through that, I'm sorry this is such a long response to your question, Caroline. Um, The way through burnout is it really depends on how far along we are. And the further along we are, the harder it is to sort of claw our way back. And it would be uh, taking the temporarily taking stock, taking a break of where, where we are and taking stock of our situation, our symptoms, addressing the symptoms. Um, it would also be implementing routines and strategies to address those symptoms. So, for example, if sleep was an issue, then we would be really looking at our sleep hygiene and cleaning that up. And then once we've sort of addressed the immediate struggles of burnout and our mood is starting to lift a little bit, then we would be um, looking maybe more deeply at some of the values and beliefs that we hold that has led us to the burnout in the first place. Yeah. It's a it's a big topic and one that's becoming more prevalent across multiple areas of society. I've got friends who have burnt out at work, and it's it's mm-hmm. a terrible process to see people mm-hmm. go through. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. I think all of us as activists have seen it in mm-hmm. other activists um, and maybe experienced it ourselves. Do you have any any yeah. suggestions for how to um, help others who might? I suppose one of the things about activism is and people who are 
getting to the point of burnout is they just feel such a like a need or an obligation to keep on keep fighting mm. you know keep mm-hmm. on yeah. working mm. can do, do you have any suggestions for people who might be around someone or noticing the signs of burnout how they might be able to support someone they're seeing um, struggling Sure. Uh, I would say that if we're going to communicate with someone about their own mental health, we need to tread very carefully. Um, Mm. And so this would be very much focusing on what it is that we're observing because we can never really know what someone's mental health is Mm. from the outside. It's impossible to know. Mm. So it would be very much focusing on, okay, what is it that we're noticing that's making us concerned? So we're not going to approach someone, you know, a colleague and say, oh, look, I think you're burnt out. Mm. It would be more like, hey, I noticed that you just don't seem yourself lately. Is anything going on? Oh, I noticed that um, you're struggling to submit your assignments or your work projects by the appropriate deadline. Um, Or it might be, hey, I've noticed that you think, you know, you're you're okay, you've got some dark circles under your eyes, you're having any trouble sleeping. And it would really be helping them to draw their attention to things that they might not have realised are happening or they might they might not have been aware that it was noticeable to other people. And then by sort of very gradually may, helping them become aware of these things, then we might say, oh, hey, you know, is, it, is there something going on that's causing you to lose sleep? Um, you know, is, is there something that I can help you with? And they might say, no, no, I've just got a lot on my plate. So then that can be the, a, a good segue into talking about some of their struggles if they're willing to talk about them. And we have to respect that they might not be ready to have that conversation in that moment. Mm. But at the very least, we've drawn their attention to something they may have been unaware of. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Ash. Can I just bring um, the conversation back to another, I think, excellent um, part of of your book, where you talk about um, emotional intelligence and you also talk mm-hmm. about skills for healthy activism. So obviously self-awareness is something um, that is really sort of key when we're um, trying to deal with our own internal sort of struggles. But you also say that, you know, being a change agent in, in whatever um, movement um, and cause that we're advocating for requires more than just empathy and it requires resilience and faith, etc. And I wondered if you would um, just expand on that for us, please. Okay, sure. The The resilience is, that refers to being able to bounce back when we encounter obstacles or when we have struggles. So resilience is what keeps us going when, you know, we're at a, we're at an outreach event or we're at a vigil and someone yells at us to get a life. It's resilience that keeps us moving forward and keeps us going. Yeah. So... Um, resilience is sort of wrapped up in emotional intelligence. It is one component of that. And being emotionally intelligent, it's the the empathy part of it is very important in understanding other people's mindsets, but empathy is not enough. And Mm. even in becoming vegan, everyone says we need more empathy, we need more empathy, but still empathy is not enough. We also have to have the compassion to understand how to make change. Mm. So if empathy is the emotion, then compassion is is the force that creates change. So anyone who was not born vegan, who became vegan, we first experienced empathy for animals and we then had the compassion to then be able to make the appropriate change, which was to go vegan. Because empathy is a double-edged sword. You can have empathy and it can lead us into a state of what's called empathic distress. Mm. So if there's, if there's two avenues out of empathy, one is compassion to become vegan and empathic distress is where we become so identified with animal suffering, that we become almost incapacitated, unable to move forward and unable to move out of that, even to become vegan. Mm. So we don't want to end up in that state. Mm. We want to have empathy, yes. We also want to have compassion and also the resilience to cope with whatever it is that we struggle with or whatever we encounter, even if it's our own demons. I mean, I went vegan Mm when I was 27 years old. So that means I've lived for 27 years consuming animals unthinkingly. And that is something that I have to face up to, take accountability for and acknowledge. And when the moments of guilt rise up, it's my resilience and my emotional intelligence that helps me deal with that guilt so that I don't become consumed by it. Mm. 
Thanks for that, Ash. I think that's such an important message because it's something that I hear a lot of people say, I wish I knew earlier or I wish I went vegan earlier or I can't believe I didn't know X, Y, Z. And I think we can really beat ourselves up about things like this. Mm. On, on the topic of yeah. um, resilience, I yeah, I think it's it's really important. I wonder if it's possible to expand on it a little bit in mm-hmm. in terms of because I see it I see it used in you know the corporate world. We're, we've got to have resilient workers, and it almost feels like it's like it's a subtext for you just need to get you just need to work through the hard times and work through the shit. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's sort of not what. Um, self-care is about so how does how does self-care and a proper understanding of resilience work Mm. yes thank you so much for bringing that up Um, that's really important because I think resilience can be used almost as like a band-aid term to any hardship that someone's going through with oh just be resilient and just pull yourself together and it can almost be gaslighting in a way it's a very Mm. toxic message and so resilience if you think about um, think about a rubber band when you stretch it and then it bounces back to its original shape. Um, just like that, just like a stressor will stretch us and then we bounce back to our original shape. But that bouncing back takes time and there's no universal amount of time that that should take. And it depends on our emotional state at the time. It depends on the size of the stressor. It depends on um, the, the nature of the difficulty and if some sort of trauma has been triggered so for someone to have a hardship, have some kind of hardship and then be told, just get over it, just heal, just bounce back, the process of bouncing back can take time. It can take, can take hours, it can take days, it can take weeks, months or even years for some people. Mm. And so resilience would, if we're talking about the skills that are included under resilience, it's, it's the ability to recognize emotions, understand what they are for, to be able to heed the message that the emotion is giving us in order to have an adaptive response to them. It's also to just sit and be with those feelings and acknowledge that they exist mm-hmm. and to not try and hide them or deny them because they actually get worse and cause more damage when we do that. And it's to um, get support, whether that's reaching out to get support from our community or our family or friends or from a professional um, or from our activist community. It's having an understanding that, like having a meta perspective that, yes, things are hard now. They're not going to always feel this hard. It's not always going to be this difficult. Um, These are just some of the skills, by the way, included in resilience. So if we can try and cultivate those as much as possible it doesn't mean we don't go through hard times and it doesn't mean that we bounce back immediately but it means that we do bounce back Mm. yep thanks for that that was really insightful yeah absolutely um i was thinking we might sort of shift our attention a little bit and again coming back to um to your book where you talk in um a later chapter of the book about creating a cohesive movement so this really is talking about um, animal rights advocacy and the animal rights movement and that a cohesive movement is one where everyone works together towards a common goal and they don't allow themselves to be derailed by conflict. We know that, you know, really within any group there are going to be, you know, divergent views about things and you go on to say in social groups our brain is wired to at times people please and care about what others think of us and Mm -hmm. I guess want to be part of a group and sometimes want to be liked as in social Mm -hmm. media liked or or retweeted would you um expand on some of your thoughts there around um cohesion in the animal rights movement and I guess what you see as being important there yeah I think that the the first point that you mentioned, Caroline, about working together towards a common goal, that's really the the crux of it because Mm. we might, uh, amongst all animal activists, we might think we're working towards the same goal uh, and then sometimes it becomes apparent that we're not. So Mm. on the surface, it might seem that we're all working towards um, animal liberation as animal activists, that is our goal. Uh, For some people, they are 
fighting for animal liberation, but there might be another value that's held that that trumps that value. So it might be that, yes, fighting for justice is important, but also money is important or um, also fame is important mm-hmm. or also feeling like feeling like we're the leader of something mm-hmm. or feeling mm-hmm. that, that we get our perhaps narcissistic drive met. So if there is dual um, competing values, then there's going to be a problem. And it means that the group is not going to be cohesive because they're no longer striving for the same goal. And we've certainly seen some conflicts in that space in the in the we've talked about it in the on the show. Um, you know, mm-hmm. vegan saviors and um, the motivation for uh, economic veganism and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. an interesting yep. interesting perspective uh, for sure. Mm. There's also another one, which is that uh, some people are, uh, yes, they're driven for animal liberation, but they're also driven to um, feel. Uh, it's it's not just their narcissistic supply, but it's also to offload the emotions that they have, that they're struggling with. And so this can be when, uh, under the guise of activism, people um, attack others, they dox others. I'm talking about vegans or activists doing that to non-vegans. Mm. Um, it can become... It can, can, that, that things can be done under the umbrella of activism, but then if we sort of really look at the behaviour, we can we can see that this is not this is not activism, or at least it's not effective activism. And it might be that, yes, animal liberation is a goal and it's a value, but what's more important there is to offload feelings of discomfort at whoever the target might be. Yeah. Mm, that's just all fascinating. Thanks thanks for that, Ash. I guess one of the things that, that I sort of see as... Um, perhaps a point of friction, an ideological point of friction in the animal rights movement is, I guess, those who really have a, uh, what I call, animals only philosophy and Mm -hmm. those that appreciate that um, animal liberation is part of the collective liberation that we should be fighting for. And You've probably um, been part of some of these discussions and, and seen many of these mm-hmm. discussions, particularly um, in recent time. And um, yeah. I guess I'd like to get your perspective on that. And, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, something that I really, really struggle with because I, I fundamentally can't understand why anyone would think that um, anything's being taken away from their animal rights advocacy Mm. if they acknowledge other forms of oppression at a fundamental level. You know, we're not asking animal rights activists to get involved in other social justice movements per se, Mm. but we're asking them to recognise them, appreciate them and not cause further harm. Yeah. So I'd really love your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, I... I think, Adam, I think you might have mentioned it earlier about um, as we become vegan and become activists and we sort of go through multiple transitions. And I feel that that is a key one because as perhaps earlier on in our advocacy uh, evolution, uh, it's tempting to view it as animals only. And because, you know, we might say, well, animals, you know, we we can argue that animals are the most oppressed group um, in the world and... That, that no oppression is as rampant or as significant as animal oppression. Um, and I think that it's, that's viewing oppression with a lens that is short-sighted mm-hmm. and it doesn't take account of the broader picture of what is actually underneath oppression. And mm-hmm. so if you can look at oppression from a different viewpoint, maybe a um, more metacognitive viewpoint, um, I think in... I think some people might view it as like taking a taking a step backwards and viewing the movement as a whole in relation to other movements. Then we'll see mm. that every form of oppression has common roots. And if we advocate for animals only and we do it at the expense of humans, then we're actually perpetuating oppression. Mm. Because if most people, if you force them to choose between animals and humans, most people will choose humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and... I'm excluding vegans and animal activists from this, obviously. If you if you say to people, okay, Black Lives Matter and also um, let's fight to end speciesism, the Black Lives Matter is going to be much more palatable because speciesism, 
speciesism is so rampant and so pervasive that we don't even notice it. And and my the way I see things is that we don't have to choose. We mm. don't have to choose one or the other. And why would we want to perpetuate the idea of oppression by simply swapping out humans over animals? It, it doesn't make sense. If we really want to dismantle oppression, we need to dismantle the foundation of oppression, which is the idea of superiority, and whether that superiority comes by race or by class or by skin colour or by gender or by sexuality or by species. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ash. Continuing on with that, I did want to ask um, you about your thoughts around some recent debates around um, animal rights advocacy um, using quite provocative language. So mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, quite a few discussions around whether it's appropriate, um, whether it's actually helpful for people to mm. draw analogies and use terms such as Holocaust and slavery. Mm-hmm. I'd really love to hear yep. your, your views on that. Yes, you know, um, it's interesting that you you have noticed the conversations about whether it's appropriate. The The way that the conversations that I've seen, and I acknowledge, Caroline, we've probably seen different things. Um, a lot of the conversations I'm seeing are people arguing that it is, like, factually correct, mm-hmm. and therefore the terms mm-hmm. need to be used. So the, the the argument is, well, by dictionary definition, it yes. is correct, therefore yes. it must be used. And, yes. you know, I feel that that's probably the wrong conversation to have, because mm-hmm. whether or not something is factually correct is less important than whether it's effective. And mm-hmm. my stance on this has really come from that effectiveness point of view because if facts were enough then we'd all be vegan but we're not these emotionless blank slates um and we we all come you know we're all sort of walking around this earth with our own traumas and our own um, beliefs and our own difficulties and if we're using terms that we that are knowingly eliciting trauma Mm. um that I, i view that as an enormous problem and I would say that yeah. a huge a huge part of our global dilemmas are underpinned by trauma that is getting activated again and again. Mm-hmm. And, and it, so, it sort of it goes back to that word that you were using earlier, compassion. It sort of shows mm-hmm. a lack of compassion to others' um, perspectives and um, past trauma, and not respecting that uh, maybe maybe that word is out is isn't appropriate and that it's okay not to use that word. There's other ways we can describe and talk about the issues um, and the oppression of animals. Yeah. Absolutely. And the context matters as well because it's yes. very, very different. If, um, you know, if I'm having a conversation with my husband and, and I might choose to use certain words because I know, I know his history, I know his background, um, but if I'm putting something on social media where hundreds or thousands or millions of people can see it, there is no accounting for the impact that that's going to have. And if we're putting something out there publicly, then we need to have accountability for the harm that mm-hmm. that message can cause for people who genuinely have trauma. And mm-hmm. I'm talking about genuine trauma. I'm not talking about people who um, sort of weaponize mental illness. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we know that, I know, Caroline, you mentioned some words already. There are also words that relate to sexual assault and sexual violation, yes. um, yes. which are incredibly, incredibly triggering. And we know, I mean, the statistics are absolutely appalling as to how many women particularly have experienced sexual assault in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just, to me, seems the height of irresponsibility to publicly put out a message using some of these absolutely triggering words. And there's, there's no accounting for who may see that and the impact that that's going to have. If we're talking with someone one-on-one and we use a word that triggers them, we're there with them. We're face-to-face with them. We can help them. We can see the impact that it's had. And if we're not equipped to help them, then we can find someone who is. But when we're putting something out there, it's, it's um, I guess, a problem of social media, which is, or any media, mm. online media really, which is that once the message is out, you have no idea how that's going to be received. And if you look at um, news articles in the mainstream media, often the ones relating to some of these difficult topics, especially what's been happening in Parliament lately, mm. they will always have links to, to crisis services. Yes. They always do because they know that the reader may be triggered 
and may need support. And so they put those links in there. But I don't see any of that in, you know, amongst, say, in influencers on social media who are using these words. I don't see any of them putting in crisis links, links for support. You know, here is who you can reach out to if you're mm. struggling with my use of this word. I don't see that. And to me, it's just so irresponsible. And, um, you know, I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm very yeah. passionate about this because um, trauma is such a big problem. There are more people walking around with trauma than we realise, even the most seemingly functioning, put-together people often experience um, are experiencing terrible trauma or reliving mm. their trauma. And it's, you know, socially speaking, why would we, why would we reactivate and trigger people's trauma when it's so easily avoided? We can advocate for animals passionately and powerfully without having to use specific words that we know are going to traumatise them. Exactly. Thanks, yeah. Ash. I absolutely agree. You know, we, we need to be responsible in our advocacy and, and you also raised some great points about whether this is even effective mm. um, either. And yes. time flies because we're at the end of the yes. show. And before oh, we, wow. before, we, there's so many other things we could talk yeah, to you about. That, so that, we might have to get you to come back again. Yeah, that's an hour. Yeah. And before we go, Ash, we'd really like to thank you for your, um, your expertise and your thoughts um, and thoughtful comments. And could you just tell us where, where could people find your book um, or your other work? Uh, is there somewhere they can look? Uh, yes, so I post <clears throat> I post um, my you know rantings and things on Facebook. I've got and on Instagram. Um, if you look up vegan neuropsychologist, you'll you'll find me there. Um, and also from if you check out the either of those social media pages, there's links to my to my um, book in those um, in those pages. Fantastic. And the book, again, is called Staying Positive in an Effed Up World uh, by mm -hmm. Ash Nayate. And uh, we'll be putting your links in the show notes. For anyone that's listening, you'll be able to find Ash and Ash's work. So thank you very oh, much, great. Ash. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye. And you've been listening to Freedom of Species. Uh, thanks again for t tuning in. And we will be back next week from one till two every week here on Sundays and we're just going to go out on a song we probably won't get all the way through this song um, but we're going to go out on another Katie White uh, song and it's called Brumby a very hot topic here in Victoria and Indeed. New South Wales here we go listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.